Welcome to episode 15 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. This week, we're going to be talking about books and inspiring all of you with music from a fabulous new global choir. You're really going to love that one. But first, we wanted to tell you the results of the Books Are My Bag Readers Awards, chaired by Grace Dent in an open virtual ceremony last week. These are the only book awards that are actually chosen by readers, and the Reader's Book of the Year Award went to Maggie O'Farrell's book, Hamnet, a brilliantly imagined tale about Shakespeare's wife, Agnes, and their only son. Other winners were Stuart Turton for his novel, The Devil in the Dark Water, and Dara McAnulty for her Diary of a Young Naturalist. We'll put details of all the other winners on our website, but we thought you'd be interested to know as these are picked by readers rather than critics. So if you're going to buy a book for someone this Christmas, there's a really good chance you will actually enjoy it. And there's another book we think would make a great Christmas present, which is Portraits for NHS Heroes, the brainchild of artist Tom Croft, who offered to paint an NHS worker's portrait for free and then thought other artists might do the same. Well, 500 artists signed up and the book is a selection of all those paintings and drawings. I've actually got the book and it really does capture just how heroic NHS workers were in the last lockdown and are undoubtedly being during this one too. It costs £25 and all royalties will go to NHS charities together. You can find all the details of that on our website. We also wanted to alert you to a one-off reading of Shakespeare's The Tempest, starring Geraldine James and Rebecca Hall. It's been directed by Rebecca's sister, Jenny, both daughters, of course, of the great late Peter Hall. Jenny herself starred as Miranda in her father's 1988 production of The Tempest at the National Theatre, and now, just a few odd years down the line, this is her directorial debut. You can see this live reading on Zoom for one night only on Thursday the 19th of November at 730 Go to Shake-Festival online for tickets. Again, you'll find all those details on our website. Because of lockdown, the Stratford Literary Festival Winter Weekend is now going entirely online. It starts this Friday, the 20th, and runs till next Wednesday. It's got a fantastic programme of events that include Dame Hilary Mantel talking about her Cromwell trilogy and the latest book of essays, Mantel Pieces. Get it? Andrew <laughs> Marr talking to Sophie Rayworth about what makes Britain. Hermione Lee talking to Sir Richard Eyre about Tom Stoppard, the subject of her new biography, of course. Historian Margaret McMillan suggesting that humans are programmed for war. And entrepreneur Margaret Heffernan arguing that unpredictability is actually good for us. Yes, well, I'll believe that when I see it in the middle of lockdown. But um, that's just the start of it, because there's poetry from Roger McGough, a You Heard It Here first section for brand new writers, fun for families, and even an online discussion in partnership with the Cambridge Literary Festival about the impact of coronavirus on our cultural sector. There's loads going on, but there's one event I'm particularly interested in, and that's Matthew Paris talking about his new book, Fracture, how Great Lives Take Root in Trauma. Most of our listeners, of course, will know Matthew as a prolific journalist and presenter of Radio 4's Great Lives, and we're really lucky to have him with us today. Hello, Matthew. Hello, hello. Yeah, luckier than you realise, because I got into a, a muddle with my laptop, but here I am. I was really struck by the premise for this book, because especially in lockdown, we're all trying to stay strong by living by corneal mantras like whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger and so on. But you've said you're not interested in the way adversity toughens you up into resilient, leathery old survivors. Instead, you're fascinated by how trauma turns people into nervous wrecks who are also geniuses. So start by telling us about that. I'm very glad you started with that because 
throughout writing this book and and now we've uh, we've we've just launched it i i've been worried that people are going to muddle what i'm saying with something that uh, frederick nietzsche first said and which has become quite quite famous, whatever doesn't kill you makes you strong. And I'm quite sure that's true. You know, we're all toughened up by adversity. Uh, boot camps breed resilience, but they don't breed genius. And the link that I'm making between huge adversity in childhood, between often breakdown um, in childhood, between that and the emergence of genius is nothing to do with people becoming tougher or, or more resilient. We're not the sort of scarred old Frank Sinatra um, character singing, you know, I, 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 I bit it up, et it up and spat it out and all that kind of thing. Especially in youth, when we're, 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 we're most, most raw and open uh, to the world, when everything seems to break down and when all our certainties are in some way shattered or put into question, that that can trigger in in some not most but in some human beings the emergence of what we call genius you'll ask me how i define genius i can't define genius but in so many cases in the cases i've studied a genius begins with an understanding that the world is completely wrong about something or everything it begins in a kind of despair about things and that that is even true in science as well as as in the arts. So it's the breaking down rather than the building up of people that seems to me to, to, to be sometimes uh, transfigurative. Most of the biographies I've read in this excellent book are obviously about trauma in childhood. And in fact, you you split it up into five uh, different categories, I think that's right, isn't it? Yes, you I have, have, yes. You have chaos, you have isolation, you have cruelty sort of Dickensian cruelty, you have shock, and you have affliction. Uh, But you haven't come across anyone to whom it's happened in middle age. There's only one in the book to whom it appeared to happen in middle age. And incidentally, those those categories, they're they're just illustrations of the kind of things that can uh, knock you to the the floor. Uh, 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 Some people suffered from all of them. Some people suffered from something that can't quite be captured by any of them uh, so i don't want to get hung up on on the categories but the the, the one uh, that 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 uh, doesn't fall into the youth section as it were is machado de assis uh, who was almost undoubtedly the greatest brazilian writer uh, who has ever lived uh, i i am aware that most of my english readers will not be familiar with his work but if you're a brazilian you would be now machado de, de assis who who actually came from quite a broken childhood nevertheless turned himself into a writer of of pap basically he was a a fashionable middle class writer of of uh, the sort of novels that you know we might for instance associate barbara cartland with in britain he did very well he became famous but but his uh, his his work was uh, uninteresting in the middle of his life when he was in his 40s he suffered the most tremendous epileptic seizures uh, they very nearly killed him uh, he was on death's door for a long time he, he he didn't know where or who he was for quite a while he recovered from all that and became in many ways the man that he was before but he just completely stopped writing the pap 
and turned into an absolutely original. I I can't really sum up his genius. I I don't uh, speak Brazilian Portuguese, but there was a complete turnaround in the the middle of his life. And so I'm not suggesting that um, hitting the wall, so to speak, in middle life can't be transfigurative. Religion... uh, offers lots of examples. Whether we believe them as true or not, they certainly go into our mythology. St Paul struck blind on the on the road to Damascus is a, is a pretty good example. It's just absolutely fascinating. You've got so many extraordinarily, such a range of characters. You know, Coco Chanel, Charlie Chaplin, Edward Lear, Abraham Lincoln, John Lennon. You know, I, um, Ed's favourite question quite often is that um, you can't pick a favourite child, but if you've got a favourite character, which would it be? Oh, that's a good one. I like that question. <laughs> well, it's yours. <laughs> you always ask it. I've totally forgotten. I'm glad and you I've I've, I've stolen it today. <laughs> I was about to tell you my favourite one is I'll tell you in a minute. Just, oh, okay. Just before I I do, and and it enables me to mull it over in my mind. You read you read a list, um, all of almost all of whom, except for Coco Chanel, were men. I have tried very hard to have um, as many women as I can. One of the problems being that that in history, w- women's voices were often not heard, and and so people that might have emerged as geniuses were, were never able to. And one of my problems in my BBC Great Lives series has has been that uh, people don't choose women. Women choose, women guests on the programme choose uh, women 50% of the time and men 50% of the time. Out of nearly 500 guests on Great Lives, how many men, you might guess, have, have chosen a woman as the Great Life? The answer is four, four out of, <laughs> out of 500. So you see what we're up against. That's an amazing. <laughs> and who who were the women out of interest? Who were those women that they chose? I won't be able to reel off all four off the top of my head, but one one was Michael Howard, who chose Queen Elizabeth the first. Well, yes, you know that that's great, but it's 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 a pretty shameful record. Anyway, we we about a, about a quarter to a third of those in my book are, are women, but my my favourite. Favorite is the wrong word. The what I found m- most moving is is Abraham Lincoln, and oddly enough, I do not select as the identifying fracture in his childhood poverty. Although his family were very very poor, they were frontier people. They kept moving from American frontier to American frontier, carving out little bits of um, little bits of forest and trying to make a living. He really was born and raised in a single log cabin. He really did have no education. He went to school for three months of his entire life. He he, he really did lack books, but wanted books and, and learnt the four books or five that he had off by heart. And he wanted writing paper, had no writing paper and would scratch onto pieces of wood because he wanted to write. So if you want to set up deprivation, hardship, as it were, as the fracture, you could. But I don't. It's his relationship with his father. His father was a, a bit of a brutal man in lots of ways. Some of the reports we have have of him suggested that he had a, a, a good heart, but there was a terrible relationship with his son, absolutely terrible. And to the extent that when he became 
president when he became famous, although he was he was very well known for his dutifulness. He was very well known for his openness to the poor as well as to the rich. It would have suited his image to to boast about his his dear old illiterate father and to have brought him into his life. He simply couldn't. He hardly ever mentioned his father. He hardly visited his father. There was some sort of awful a mental block, some psychological block between the the father and the son. I was really interested in in the Coco Chanel story actually, because so you I. always, yeah, because you always that associate her with, yeah, glamour. It was it, yeah. I really like that one too. Tell us about her, Matthew. Well, my story starts with her on the steps of uh, an orphanage in Aubazine in in France, uh, a, a bleak and dreadful place, and. Uh, uh, the little girl with with her sister was deposited there by relations the father was completely wayward had uh, neglected kept absconding uh, she wasn't his wife but the woman that he was with and um, and coco's mother uh, coco's name actually was gabrielle and her surname was chasnel and not chanel but they the, the keeper of records got it wrong when when she was born illegitimately and the word that was used in in those days the, the poor mother uh, kept following the father around and the father kept escaping to another place he was a traveling salesman and at this point completely disappears uh, from her life she could never come to terms psychologically with this and always told everybody that her her father was um had become famous and rich in the united states and and did love her but was not able to come back again the little girl is left on the steps of a, a bleak orphanage and in her own words she wrote about herself often in the in the third person she couldn't bring herself to use the word i and she couldn't bring herself to use the word orphanage either and in in her story it's some horrible aunts that she is is um, is left with the the little girl finds that uh, the aunts are annoyed that she has arrived after they have made a meal and the aunts uh, say they better make her something to eat and they say they will um, boil her a couple of eggs and 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 she says i don't like eggs and says says coco chanel um the little girl does like eggs she loves eggs and she's ravenously hungry but at this point in her life the little girl just feels the need to say no to something no to everything no to mankind and uh, chanel herself recognizes that this was a turning point in her life a complete rejection of of everything now the di- the difficulty with chanel's story is that she has told it herself many times and and there are plenty of plenty of gaps between the different versions of herself that she gives but the elements are all the same that the life starts in destitution she was with her mother incidentally when her mother died probably of tb in a in a cold lodging somewhere somewhere in central france that the destitution uh, the despair the rejection the hatred of the world is where she starts but the other thing that fascinates me is because um, obviously you read everything through the prism of your own experience and i've had a extremely comfortable upbringing and fulfilled almost a preordained destiny given my parents background but I'm always fascinated by people who explode on the world without any link to their background at all yes Charlie Chaplin Charlie Chaplin is a is a wonderful example his mother was mentally ill um for all of his his childhood and absent for much of his childhood his father was an alcoholic and little charlie chaplin at times actually just had to sleep on benches 
in, in South London. The one, he hardly went to school, but the one school he did go to was absolutely miserable and, and, and he and his brother were, were destitute and abandoned and it's actually when you look at Charlie Chaplin's genius when you look at his work when you look at both the pathos and the humour it is quite difficult once you know where Charlie Chaplin came from to imagine him coming from anywhere else to that kind of genius in answer also to to what Ed was saying uh, Alexander Hamilton is another one his his mother was little short yes, of that's a very being a, a, a prostitute. His father was an absentee Scottish sailor. They were they were never married, and he was brought up on the uh, the island of Nevis, St Kitts St Kitts Nevis. It's called today the state, and uh, it, it, complete destitution uh, as a child, and um, somehow just 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 took off and, and ended up founding the entire financial system of the United States and commanding the troops that uh, won the Battle of uh, Yorktown against the British. Just imagine if the guy had not left the S out of Chanel. Do you think that brand could... Chesnel, we'd all be talking about the genius of Chesnel. I know, can you imagine? I don't think it would have flown at all. I think think that's got a lot to ask for too. How different would Matthew Parrott's life have been if they'd left out the second R? This is the question, really. Yes, or if it had been Parrish, which just doesn't have the same ring. Yes, no, no. Or Harris. (laughs) (laughs) I've just just alienated possible book buyers called Parrish or Harris now. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. And talking about Miss Chesnel. It's a wonderful book. It's called Fracture, Stories of How Great Lives Take Root in Trauma, and uh, numerous fascinating biographies of amazing geniuses who exploded upon the world. We haven't talked about Donald Trump's trauma, but we'll return to that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, probably was. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Matthew. It's lovely to talk to you. We wanted to end the week literally on a high note, as we're going to have some music for the first time on our podcast. The Self-Isolation Choir was formed in April for people in isolation all across the globe to come together and perform Handel's Messiah. 3,600 singers signed up within weeks. And now the choir performs and records a variety of works and gives expert training with leading conductors and musicians all via technology. The choir went from zero to 12,000 subscriptions across 50 countries in under six months. And here to tell us all about this astonishing and heartwarming success story is choir director Ben England. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Good morning, Ben. And it is exciting to have you on as well, all dying to know how we can hear the choir and even more so how we can join. Wonderful. I can't sing a note um, that I'm aware of, but there is something so uplifting about so many people merging online to do this. We've already done quite a bit on this podcast about the benefits of singing and music in lockdown, but this is on an altogether different scale. It's absolutely massive. So tell us whose brainchild it was and what was it that you think managed to capture so many people's imagination across the world? My, my colleague Mark Strawn is the man behind this wonderful choir. Um, he is a chorister and uh, a retired business leader who who really felt the the absence of choirs in lockdown and reached out to me through a through a mutual acquaintance to to form this wonderful group with the 
really with the idea of putting on Handel's Messiah. Uh, and we, to begin with, we didn't know how many people we were going to get. We sort of set out with the, with the goal of a thousand people maybe by the end of the project. And within a matter of, I think it was 48 hours, we had nearly 2,000 people sign up. And that just set us on a path that we, we had no idea where it was going to lead, but it's it's been absolutely thrilling to see so many people from all around the world come together, singing in isolation, but really connecting through the act of learning and singing um, and forming a, a, a close uh, family feel and a, a, a wonderful community of very supportive people. But how? How did you get everybody to join up? Well, obviously, we, we launched a website. We launched a, uh, a, to begin with, a fairly small campaign with our partner, uh, Coraline, who is a, a, a fantastic app which uh, helps choral singers learn lovely choral music. And um, so it started out as a, a small, really, publicity drive, and then word of mouth carried it far beyond our initial ideas. We thought it would be a small project for the West of England, uh, and before we knew it, we had people all around the world. So I think there was a, a feeling of lighting the blue touch paper. Well, I've had singing lessons, and... Uh... <laughs> Have you? <laughs> Well, they're better than sex, actually. The <laughs> you feel at the end. Can I but, quote you on that? Yeah, you heard well, it I here mean, first. I'm quoted now, but I mean, without wishing to stretch the analogy too far, <laughs> despite many lessons, I still can't sing. <laughs> can no, I, I don't can think I can. somebody who can't sing become a okay singer? The fact is that everybody can sing, but it's a it's a matter of degrees. It's a matter of permission. You know, how much do we give ourselves permission to sing? Um, without judgment, how much do we give ourselves permission to just enjoy ourselves and make sound? And that's that's behind all of the online singing that we're doing. Um, it's not about producing a, a studio quality performance that can stand shoulder to shoulder with you know professionals. It's about people in isolation, feeling cut off from the world, singing and feeling a connection with people. And so it, it doesn't matter. And the fact is, it's a virtual choir. When we're rehearsing, I'm broadcasting onto YouTube and people are singing along at home. Um, so it's a, a one-way a, a one-way broadcast but what I get is feedback in the form of YouTube comments which are streaming up constantly throughout the rehearsal and um, and people are talking and communicating and connecting and enthusing and some someone will pop up and say I'm completely lost where are we and someone else will comment page 45 and uh, and in the end at the end of the day you get people saying well I can't sing a note but I really enjoyed that and I felt like I was part of something yeah, so, good. so I, can, <laughs> I can rock up and sing oh yeah Absolutely. What we've discovered is that, you know, having started this as a, initially as just a lockdown project, um, our, the model of, of learning is that everybody uh, rehearses with me. So we have uh, rehearsals every night during the week. So we have sopranos on a Tuesday and altos on a Wednesday and so on. And so you get a focused hour of of. Oh, well, one-to-one -one attention, effectively. You know, normally in a choir rehearsal, you, you're only singing for about a quarter of the time because the conductor is dealing with the other parts. Here you get a focused rehearsal and then you can sing it back as many times as you like. And so a lot of people have said they think it's a model for, for choral singing in the 21st century so that you can actually learn your parts on YouTube and then sing, sing in the concert having, take, uh, having learned the, the parts in your own time and your own pace. Well, I think that's true. I think this kind of hybrid world is here to stay mm. in so many mm. different areas. And that's a very mm. good example of 
an experiment that wouldn't have happened without nope. COVID. I mean, we'd all rather COVID hadn't happened at all. Quite. But nobody would have thought about this mixing of the digital instruction or, or no. training, if you like, Absolutely. with the live performance. But in terms of choirs in general, I mean, the lady who taught me had formed a choir in, she herself was not a criminal, but she'd formed a choir in prison. <laughs> <laughs> um, she ran a charity. And this is um, where she met you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's one of the things I sort of bang on about, about the arts and criminal justice. I mean, the thing that she said to me, which uh, has always remained with me, is, you know, when somebody leaves prison and they join a choir, her choir, you know, they have a ready-made community the minute they come out, which is has a massive impact on their prospects when they leave prison. I mean, choirs, it's not just, people aren't just isolated during COVID. People are isolated in all sorts of different ways even when life is normal, and choirs play an incredible role. Mm, absolutely, they do. There's, there is a real need for for community and support. People talk about church attendances dropping and how um, how people used to come together and sing, and, uh, and that community cohesion that that happens when you everybody goes into a, a building, all feeling different feelings, being in a different state emotionally, physically. And the act of singing is so powerful and so important, so tribal, um, that by the end, everybody has, has taken part in this activity together. They've all breathed together, they've all made sound together, and they've all agreed on, on a tune, <laughs> some, some more than others. But, you know, there's a sense of everyone is coming together and singing together. And it is hugely important, I think, for our, our psychological uh, health, our mental health, and our physical health to sing together regularly. And so when we're isolating, yeah, whether it's for COVID or, uh, or, or whether people just can't get to choir rehearsals, I think this model provides, if it fills a gap in the market that, that, that really, as you say, we, we wouldn't have seen this if it weren't for COVID, but now we've got this, well, I, I don't see people letting go of it. So I think it's time we heard something. So here is the self-isolation choir singing, what else? Handles Messiah. That was just fantastic. And I really want to join, but I really, I think I'm even worse than edit singing. No, this is the point. You can't say that, Charlotte. Absolutely. Okay, well, should we join together, Ed? Should we do it? Yes, let's join together. You would be more than welcome, both of you. In this choir, you can literally take part in the bits that you like. uh, uh, And as as we said, we we did a concert on Saturday and uh, had people saying, I'm singing along with the soloist. Now... In a concert situation, if the choir started singing with the soloist, the conductor would eject them forthwith. But here, you've got that total freedom to just, I suppose, connect with the music any way you like. God, how wonderful. Well, that was absolutely brilliant. Um, and you're you. going to be doing a big carol concert, aren't you, on the 20th December? That's right. And teaching children around the world to sing the first verse of Once in a World, <laughs> David City. Absolutely. 
So tell us about that and how families can get involved. Oh, thank you. Well, we had our, our first rehearsal uh, yesterday. We've got a, a number of sessions with the children uh, throughout November. Yes, the idea is that, obviously, when, when you hear Once in a Roll David City sung, um, that first verse is usually sung by that beautiful solo treble voice sort of floating uh, floating through. And, and we, we thought, well given that we've got this ability to take individual voices by the way that that hallelujah chorus every single voice every single instrument was recorded in isolation that orchestra was recorded in oh, really? isolation and combined sort of, um, no no amazing the every single note of messiah all the solos all the instruments every single person was playing in their living room and it was then combined in the studio it was you know incredible and we now have the ability to take people's voices whether they are you know an experienced chorister or a six-year-old and combine them uh, and form a choir and it's amazing how people's voices blend so so we have this uh, this idea of getting a large choir of young people to sing that first verse of once in royal um, and so yesterday we had our, our first sing through as i say there are more coming and you can find out how to do that by going to the website which is www.theselfisolationchoir.com and you can find a link there to christmas and you can find out how to come and join us and take part in it there's no charge for children to take part in this uh, this activity because obviously it's going to be a wonderful uh, wonderful christmas treat and uh, yesterday, as I said, we had uh, well over 100 people all around the world, had children popping up saying, I'm in, um, I'm in Nevada, I'm in Australia, I'm in Singapore. You know, children coming to sing from all over the world. And we, uh, we have a recording uh, of one of our music team, a chap called Richard Gowers, who was a, a chorister at King's College, Cambridge, in the uh, early 2000s. And the children will be recording along to his 2007 performance of Once in Roll David City from Kings. Uh, and I just think it's the, the most wonderful opportunity, wonderful experience for these kids, particularly at the moment as kids aren't getting a chance to sing as they should be. You know, choirs in schools are, are, are banned. And so this, I think, is an opportunity for, for young people to sing together at Christmas. And obviously the, the effect on everybody listening is going to be profound, I'm sure. What's the age limit for children? <laughs> I think it's got to be a case of as long as you can hit the notes. I'm just thinking about my 14-year-old. Yeah, well, if they can, if they can hit the top E, I'm, yep. they're very welcome to submit. Absolutely. And as an adult to join the Self-Isolation Choir, there's a charge. Yes, so we charge per project. We keep the cost as low as we can. Um, but the, I suppose the, the, the most important thing is that obviously with, with COVID as it is, musicians' incomes have absolutely crashed. Freelancers are, are really struggling. And so the choir, through its various projects, um, has managed to pay uh, you know, substantial sums to all of these wonderful musicians for giving oh, up their brilliant. time. That's another and so, great side effect. Oh, it is. Uh, and of course, we've been working with some... Uh, world-class musicians but even they have confided you know all of their work has stopped um, and so being able to provide uh, an income for these amazing musicians I think is a, a, a really important side benefit to this. And there's in theory an unli unlimited numbers for the self-isolation choir oh, you can have, have 20,000 singers. Absolutely yeah there, there is no limit it's, it's just how many people are willing to send send their videos in I mean as I said we had three and a half thousand uh, take part in Messiah and since then, it's it's grown. So there are no limits, no. And how do you you, you sort of download the uh, the I don't even know what it's called the manuscript. 
Yes. Well, so yes, that's it. So we have a. Yeah, well done. No, so we have a. Um, we we tend to use works which are out of copyright for obvious reasons, and so we use a a free score which is in PDF form again, trying to reduce uh, the environmental impact. So it's all shared electronically. And uh, when it's when people want to record, and there is no requirement to record, that's an important thing to say, that that Hallelujah Chorus was recorded by members of the choir who wanted to sing, but plenty of people, you know, if, if you said, would you like to record yourself, would say, absolutely not, I, I'm just here to sing. And, th- and it's absolutely fine to be a member of the choir, not send in any recordings, and still feel very proud of what you've achieved. Well, thank you so much. What a fabulous note to end on. Thank you very much indeed, Ben. Thank you. That's all we've got time for this week, but we're very excited because our listeners now extend all the way to Peru. You're kidding Rosemary, me. No. <laughs> all the way to Peru. Rosemary Epaminondas got in touch to tell us our podcast made her feel positively homesick and she wanted to fly back to London to go to the theatre. I know. Well, sadly, that's not possible at the moment, but we'll keep you up to date as soon as theatres and galleries start opening again. Meanwhile, you can listen to our sister podcast, House Guest, with Carol Annette talking to some of the biggest names in design, and you can find it on our website, www.countryandtownhouse.co.uk. Yes, and you can also log in and subscribe to the weekly newsletter there by putting slash newsletter on the end of the website. I read the newsletter every week. I actually do. It's brilliant. And I love it. You can also subscribe to the new Great British Brands newsletter. And also, of course, look at the fabulous Great British Brands Christmas gift guide. But for now, thank you for listening wherever you are, whether you're in Lima or London. And we thought, as we all felt so uplifted by earlier, we simply had to play out on this. (laughs) 